Hello, listeners. Before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to Reimagine Work, a podcast dedicated to questioning our modern conception of work and its role in our lives. I'm your host, Paul Millard, and I have conversations with philosophers, authors, creators, freelancers, and vagabonds who are trying to make sense of this question in their own lives. Join me while I try to navigate the emerging future of work. If you'd like to read more of my writing, explore this podcast, or find ways to work with me, you can go to think-boundless.com. Today, I'm talking with Paul Canetti, welcoming another Paul to the uh, podcast. He describes himself as an entrepreneur, educator, and futurist, but... I wanted to reach out to him because I recognized somebody that was just deeply curious across a number of or across a wide range of interests, past experiences, and I thought it'd be fun to dive in. He's currently an adjunct at Columbia Business School. He's running a podcast covering tech news for MBAs, writes at Hypothetically Great, and he's recently taken a shift towards a more intentional path, and we're going to explore that. We're going to dive into a lot of his interests and see what emerges. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be talking to another Paul. We're rare breed. So I want to talk about uh, just growing up. I, I like to start and ask people, how, like, what were you like as a kid? How were you thinking about life? Um, how are you thinking about your path in life as you grew up? That's a good, good line of questioning. I mean, as a young kid, you know, uh, Ghostbusters was my favorite movie. Let's, you know, go, go way back. But I was Egon. So I don't know what that tells you about me. And I didn't know that he was like the sciencey nerdy one. I thought he was the cool one. Um, I also thought it was a drama, uh, and had no idea it was a comedy. So, um, you know, as Egon going through life, uh, I remember going over to friends' houses and like, you know, disassembling alarm clocks and trying to build time machines and always just sort of curious about how things worked and, and how you could sort of rearrange them into new things. And, um, I was really into music and played music and still play music. Um, at one point pursued that professionally for, for a few years. And, um, and so, yeah, I was a curious kind of nerdy kid. 
Uh, and in high school, which was, this is like late nineties was getting into early web programming, which is how I ended up befriending my eventual co-founder of, uh, a few of my startups named Simon Baumer. We went to high school together and we were basically like the two kids that were into HTML and, and CSS. And like, um, you know, we would we would spend the evenings in each of our respective homes on our family computer, you know, IMing about like HTML. Um, and so uh, that, that, you know, was some foreshadowing of, of what was to come. I didn't know that was going to be most of my career at that point, but, um, but that's sort of where my head was at. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think a lot of people I'm talking to who are doing stuff online, creating, were these people, uh, I was one of these people that would kind of go home and then like all the cool stuff I'd get <laughs> right. to work on, on the computer. I'd hang out, like I'd do like proggies on AOL and oh, yeah. G- GeoCities pages, tripod, like all, all, all GeoCities, and, definitely. Or like, um, you know, I, I, I mentioned I was a musician, like I would, I remember saving up money and buying this software called Cubase, which was like, you know, uh, what today we'd call digital audio workstation kind of software, but um, the instruction manual and the interface were all in German. Um, <laughs> so like there's was no like English language recording software, you know, and I was like in middle school trying to like figure out and there was no Google or Google translate, you know, and just trying to like figure out how to use the software. And like there was a being into computers sort of implied that you had to have an unusual level of curiosity because it, the barrier to entry on a lot of these tools was high. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but there's a lot of things happening in the internet today that feel like that to me, where it's like, yeah. you know, there's, we, we all got comfortable and my parents can use all sorts of software today easily without asking me, which is really the mark of like how mature internet software has become, but then there's a lot of new stuff on the horizon that feels like it has that similarly high barrier to entry, um, which I find, you know, like that feels familiar to me. So you tinkered a lot as a kid, you had a good word, scientist, engineering mind. Uh, Did that carry on through college? And uh, how were you thinking about, I guess, entering the quote unquote real world? Music was really my main focus through college. I played in bands and Simon, again, my my co-founder, but at the time uh, we were also college roommates. We founded an acapella group and that was kind of like, you know, um, my life. I studied philosophy undergrad, um, not with an intention of career prospects there, but just found it fast, uh, fascinating. And then um, on the tech side, I quickly learned that my coding skills were pretty bad um, and design was definitely more what I had to contribute. Um, and my father was a graphic designer, industrial designer. So like growing up our basement, like his office was old school kind of graphic design, like letra press, like, which is, you know, like, like basically sheets of letters in a particular font where you had to rub off like one letter at a time onto a piece of paper to create, you know, a typographical uh, graphic and, and um, a lot of rulers and compasses and, and that kind of thing. So like old school graphic design 
was just sort of like part of my upbringing. So Simon and I sort of became a tag team where he was good at coding. I was good at design at the beginning. That was just like, can we make a web page for our band or, you know, little projects like that. Um, and, and less career oriented there. Um, so we continued to tinker, I guess you would say, but it, it didn't really occur to me. It sounds weird now, especially, you know, I graduated high school in 2001. So this is like right after the dot-com bubble. Like I just sort of didn't know that people made software for a living. I don't know, like no one, it, it sounds so silly now, but like as a kid and even as a young adult, like I just like didn't, I didn't know that was a thing. I, I don't know why. Um, it's just no one in my life did that. None of my friends' parents were building software. Like it just, I didn't know that was a profession. Yeah, I think similar thing for me. I was reflecting a couple of years ago how I'm like building these, I'm hosting a podcast. I'm, I have these websites. I control and update and code and doing all these experiments online. And I realized that it was basically just continuing what I did as a kid. So it sounds like we were pretty similar. And really now looking at it, I left the consulting career about five years ago. That seems like the aberration. Huh. That's interesting. Um, right. But, but when I was growing up, everyone just had kind of these corporate jobs. And yeah. to me, that was what life was like you that's what a job was right you work for the rest of your life like nobody had this sense that like technology was something i should go do even while i was interested in the whole time these things were happening it just somehow never occurred to me that maybe i should go to san francisco and work for some of these companies yeah exactly and i don't know if maybe i'd been a few years older if i would have understood that better like i can remember in I don't know, let's say seventh or eighth grade, maybe like on AOL Instant Messenger. And they had a, like a test feature, you know, a beta feature. I don't know if they called it that, where you could uh, have live streaming audio, essentially a phone call through AIM. And I remember like messing around with it and being like, oh, like imagine if people made phone calls through the internet. But no part of me was like, that should be a company and I should found it and I should do a start. Like I was a teenager. I didn't, it, it just, you know, these were things that just sort of came from on high. Like there's no difference between like McDonald's and AOL. These are just like companies that some grownups did. Um, and I think it's different today. I think a teenager might think, ooh, I could do a startup and like, and actually like participate, but it didn't feel like that to me and my friends. Like we didn't know that, that we could potentially participate in that world. That was the thing that like corporations were doing or something. And, and we were just on the receiving end of. Well, that probably made sense too, because it was literally just way harder and more expensive to start a company. Yeah, fair enough. Right. Now you can spin something up automatically online within a day. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 very very true. Um and and I I think yes, it's easier to get going, but also there are more stories in the culture of people having done that um where you know, like I had heard of plenty of bands 
that had emerged from high schoolers in their garage. Like that was sort of the meme of the day for me. And I was like, that's going to be me. Um, but the, the sort of cultural meme of the teenager hacking away, you know, which is funny because of course, like Apple had already happened and Microsoft had already happened, but those stories weren't like the stories that we were telling ourselves as, as teenagers. Yeah. The, and I think what I write about, like people exploring different paths, I think we're just seeing the edges of what's going to emerge downstream from this. Because even when I left in 2017, there there were some stories, but there's been an exponential increase in the number of people sharing different stories, different paths. And these are what people look to now, right? You go on social media and you see somebody doing fan life and all of a sudden in your mind, that means it's possible. Um, and you can work towards that and you can message that person and ask them for advice. I think we're only in the early days of people actually grappling with this, which which might be an interesting segue. Uh, right now, you're an adjunct at Columbia Business School. Um, I went to business school at MIT Sloan, and I graduated in 2012. And although the tech revolution was happening, uh, people were still taking very traditional safe paths, investment banking, consulting, corporate strategy, and then like a couple of uh, people that were pursuing startups, but they were kind of seen as like, oh, they're different entrepreneurial type anyway. What's the energy and mindset of people now? Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. So dirty little secret, I didn't go to business school myself, um, and but I've been teaching at Columbia Business School now going it's on six years. It's a much cheaper way to get that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, you know, I went to the, the school of hard knocks um, and, uh, and I've always loved teaching. And um, to me, sort of doing startups and teaching about startup methodologies and, and pro- like they've always gone hand in hand and, um, and, whether that's sort of informally or formally, but um, I started teaching at Columbia in 2016. So um, this summer, uh, the summer of whatever, next summer, 22 will be six years. And, um, you know, I remember sort of informally polling my classes at the time. And I teach big sort of lecture hall style classes. Um, I currently teach two courses, introduction to product management and introduction to user experience. Um, but again, these are for MBA students, right? So most of them are not um, designers. So they're taking UX, but not necessarily to, to you know, become a UX designer, but instead to understand sort of the ethos of user experience. And product management started, started like that too. So I would sort of pull the class and say, who here is interested in a career in product management? And maybe, maybe 10% of the class would raise their hand as even just being interested they were all in the class, right? So they'd enrolled in this elective for some reason, but it, but it was still sort of like consulting finance, you know, like these, these uh, sort of mainstream career paths. Uh, but with each passing year, I would say now when I take a poll at the beginning of my PM course, it's like maybe a third of the class are a hundred percent like recruiting for PM jobs. Like that's why I'm in business school to become a product manager Another third are considering it, 
or, you know, sort of like um, it's one of a few options. Maybe they're pursuing, you know, sort of like I was working at McKinsey. Maybe I'll go back there, but maybe I'll be a PM at Amazon. Um, And then there's still some that are really just sort of curious, but even that third, they know that they will be somehow interfacing with technical teams. Like maybe I'm going to be on the marketing side, but I'm going to do this. Maybe I'm going to be on the investment side, but I need to understand how the sausage gets made. Like everyone is at least adjacent to it. Um, And again, only in five years, I've seen that sort of shift. And if you just sort of draw the trend lines out, you know, um, there's some major shifts. And at Columbia, I'm working, we're working on creating like a new sort of lab for product management. And, and um, we've expanded the curriculum now added sort of like a level two PM course. We're introducing a growth hacking course. Like um, I'm working on a new metaverse uh, course. You know, um, there's a crypto course that's being taught now. Like things are, are sort of blossoming out of what was considered sort of almost like hobby level electives into what is really shaping up to be a proper like track. Columbia doesn't do tracks, but, but um, so my word, not theirs. Yeah. It's like, you're going to business school because you want to build software products. Um, And some of those people are on the entrepreneurial path and some want to just land a job at Google, Amazon, Facebook, whatever, Meta, uh, Apple, et cetera. And it's funny because I think if you go to most PMs that work at Google today, a very, very small percentage of them studied that or anything like that when they were in school because those subjects weren't available in academia. And now it's different. You know, if, if this is a graduate program, but you can go to an undergrad uh you can get an undergrad degree like in UX research and that's going to look like a very different career path than someone who let's say is, you know, 10 or 15 years into a UX career today. They definitely did not study that 10 years ago. Um, and so we're seeing sort of the formalization of a lot of these like careers. Yeah. I always think of the MBA as the best uh, search function for like the high paid jobs that are also high status and interesting. Hmm. Um, and as soon as those paths become legible, like MBAs know exactly how to like prepare, exploit. And to be honest, it's probably a good thing. I think MBAs get a bad rap sometimes. Like I think MBAs can bring a sort of like rigor and standardization to the job. And the people that were probably PMs 10 years ago are not going to want to do that job 10 years yes. from now. They're going to be on to the next. Um, <laughs> I think, I think that's a really, a really smart and charitable uh, kind of interpretation, but, but not, but in a truthful way where as industries mature, as job functions mature, they need to become standardized. You need to know how to evaluate them. You need to know how to hire for those roles at scale. Um, right. And all of that, means more rigor and and standardization. And the other thing I think is cool about MBA students is, you know, you you said high status, and I think there's kind of a negative connotation built into that. Not necessarily that you had a negative connotation, but but just societally. But I think these are people that are essentially self-selecting as leaders or, or people that believe that they 
have the potential to be leaders, um, whatever that might mean in each case. Uh, and that they're sort of coming out of the crowd and saying like, I want to uh, lead in this space, but in a relatively safe way. So I'd love to shift gears and talk about your own journey. So you spent several years working at startups. Uh, as you said, many of those failed, two succeeded. Uh, you've recently had what you told me was kind of a life-changing or a mindset-shifting exit from two of those companies. And you're starting to think about what the next chapter for your path is. Uh, I'd, I'd love to explore that. Um, I think it sounds like you're at a similar stage. I was probably four or five years ago. But yeah, where are you right now? Like what what is the one or two questions you're thinking about? Yeah, I'm... I'm at the stage where when I meet other dads at the playground and they say, what do you do? I say, I have no idea. <laughs> my, I was just talking about this with my last uh, podcast guest. Um, he, he took some time off and he, he, was say, he was actually saying there were two other dads in a similar spot, but they always get made fun of. Yeah. Yeah. You need an answer, you know, uh, thank But why, why? No, well, well, let's explore well, that. Well, that's like, interesting. Why, yeah. why do you say we need an answer? I think, I mean, you don't need an answer. You need an answer in the same way that people say good when you say, how are you? Right. Right. Like it's just cleaner to say that than to, you know, be like, well, my elbow hurts a little bit today, but I think it's because I worked out yesterday and I might like, you know, so it depends on who the audience is. Sometimes you just need the one-line answer. And of course, my one-line answer is I'm a professor. And then that's that. But it's interesting because I've been teaching for for a long time, but I've never identified myself that way. And forget what other people think of that answer. When I hear it myself, you know, it, it's it's interesting how much of one's identity is tied up in their work in their profession, especially when you found a company and, you know, you have to sort of create hype from nothing. Um, and as if you go join a well-known company, the hype already exists and you're just kind of getting on the train. When you are building a company from scratch, by definition, there's no hype at the beginning. So you have to be the hype man or woman and a big part of that is sort of staking your personal identity and your social capital on that project. This is what I'm doing now. This is why it's going to be the biggest thing ever, you know, and, and um, it's funny looking back on myself, we founded Maz in 2010, you know, there was just so much like bluster and, and now in my old age, I almost can't imagine like doing that. It wasn't, it wasn't fake. Well, I think that's like two, that's like 2010 yeah. uh, time period too. Yeah, right? Well, right we, we've right. now had 10 years of social media on our mobile phones, which is radically transformed, like how we see things as authentic, right? In yes. 2010, I mean, you like the language of like marketing and like professionalism was so much heavier than it is yes. now. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Things had to be more polished and there were a lot of like launch parties. And I think what you're saying is that 
like as a founder, you have to believe that stuff. And inevitably, your identity is going to get tied up with that. Well, exactly. And and that no one on earth is going to believe in what you're doing if you don't genuinely believe it yourself. It's it's not that you're bullshitting. It's that you you actually do believe it. And that is infectious. And that is attractive. And that's how you recruit a team. And that's how you recruit investors and customers. And and um, it's it's all genuine, but exactly. And, and of course, when a project doesn't work, it really stings because again, it's so synonymous with yourself that you say, hey, that thing that I've been talking about nonstop that I fully believed in, it didn't work. Um, and of course, when it does work, it feels uh, it feels great, but having seen failures and successes, you know, I I'm the same person and did mostly the same stuff. So it wasn't really me in either case. So so that that's actually been a helpful lens for me to to look at. There's so many different factors um, when building a business, and now having exited. So long story short. Uh, I had two exits in the last year, but not by pure coincidence. So Maz, which we've been running for over 10 years, my uh, third co-founder, I mentioned Simon, who was one of my co-founders, our third co-founder, Shika Aurora, who was our longtime CTO and, and third co-founder. She took over as CEO um, the beginning of 2020, and I was still on the board, um, but Simon and I were working on a new project called Bounce House. And that was still fairly early in its trajectory. But when a deal started to form on the Maz side, Simon and I, uh, we hadn't raised any significant capital for Bounce House yet. And we thought, well, what if we could find a buyer for this business, which was an unusual time to sell a business? Like, uh, you know, we'd only launched a few months earlier. Um, uh, and and we were lucky that we we found a viable buyer there, but we said it was it was purposeful because we knew that the Maz deal was going to be a financial windfall, and we didn't actually have to go with the deal because we were already out of the day to day. And now we thought, okay, well, instead of sort of signing your Odyssey, what if we just like got off the ride? Um, and we were very lucky because probably if we already raised money for bounce house, which the is of COVID and whatever, but like in another scenario, we would have already been too far along with that project. Um, but here it was still pretty nascent and we were able to offload it in a, in a way that was acceptable to us and, and our investors um, within a couple of months of Maz. And so all of a sudden we sold two companies and didn't have to go with either of them. And so we found ourselves uh, without without a job, without a company. Um, and what month was that? Uh, we closed the Maz deal, which was the second on August 31st. So okay. now it's November 29th. So uh, I'm just about three months deep into this. Yeah. yeah. How does it feel? Feels longer than three months. Um, you know, it's funny. I imagined that my days would all be sort of sitting on a bench with a notebook, just ruminating on the world and exploring different neighborhoods of New York city. And, um, it's not like that at all. I'm, I'm busy. I'm slammed. I can't keep up with my emails. I'm have a million meetings all the time. Um, I, I, I'm doing it wrong, 
but, but what's interesting is that those... Have you had any days like that? The first couple of weeks, like the first day after closing, I like went to Chinatown and just like ate dumplings by myself. And I was like, this is a luxury that for whatever reason, I have not afforded myself for 11 years. Um, and that was symbolic for me. I just nowhere to be, no one to see, nothing, nothing on the agenda. Um, but what's interesting, and I, you know, at, at first I was sort of fighting this, but now I've sort of embraced it. I think I, I am the sort of person that likes to get coffees and lunches and zooms and hear what people are working on. But, but what's very different about these past couple of months versus all the other time in my life is that I don't have an angle. Like I'm not trying to sell something. I'm not trying to figure out, Hey, do you know this person that maybe then I could meet as a result of our meet? Like I'm just genuinely curious. I'm meeting with a ton of startups and hearing what they're working on and, and just like, I have a phrase for you. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me. <laughs> so, I mean, I call this like networking 1.0, right? And it's this mindset, like you're a worker, right? And the whole point of networking is for a future potential connection, right? Maybe you like each other too, but like really everyone kind of knows the subtext that it's all for future potential connections. Now, like on my path, like I don't really care about any of that. I don't yeah. want a job. I don't am not looking for a payoff. I kind of like what I'm doing. Um, so I just call them curiosity conversations. Yeah, I love and that. That seems to transcend things enough for people that it triggers the people who are like, oh, yeah, let's just talk about random stuff. Yeah. Um, well, I have this framework I call a thousand coffees. And that's what I think it takes to basically bootstrap a professional network. Um, and it almost doesn't matter who the coffees are with. I mean, they can't be too random, but at some point along the way, you start getting coffees with people that know other people you've already gotten coffee with. And the network starts, like those connections start to be made. You don't need to be particularly savvy at doing it. And if you end every conversation with who else do you know that I should be talking to? And it just kind of spreads and spreads um, from there. And a single coffee or these days, even a single Zoom, but like a real human conversation can last you a lifetime, right? Years later, you can get in touch with that person, say, hey, I noticed that you know so-and-so, would you mind introducing me? Or, hey, I'm interested in this area. You know, I know we haven't seen each other a couple of years, but it, it's, it, it's sort of, um, it's amazing just the power of sharing a coffee with someone, but you're totally right that, and I've been talking about this idea of a thousand coffees for, for years, but it's in service of some future need of some future uh, favor essentially on both sides, typically. Um, even though usually a conversation at a given time is weighted one way or the other, but sometimes in the future, you know, it can flip, but, but it is interesting to at least attempt. I love this idea of a curiosity conversation where it's almost like reading a book or an article, um, just to sort of jumpstart your own thought process. But instead of reading something on the page, you're, you know, just reading what someone's telling you. Uh, and it's like, what I'm hoping to get out of these, a lot of, a lot of these conversations is just inspiration. It's just cool to hear what people are working on. And when you are building a company, 
the blinders are on. That's one thing I've really realized. Again, it's only been three months. So, but like you are so concerned with your, the problem you're solving and the customer you're addressing and your sort of local challenges. And once you aren't focusing on a single problem all day, every day, you realize how big the world is and how many different sorts of problems people are trying to solve and how many different sorts of customers people are trying to serve and, and how many different types of careers people have. And like everything just opens up where you're not, when you're, when you're not concerned with your own thing, you know? Um, And so that's been, that's been great. Like just, 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 just learning about what, how do other people spend their day, you know? Um, and that's been really fun. And I'm hoping to sort of synthesize all that into some new life for myself at some point. Um, but uh, I'm in a very luxurious sort of moment that I'm, I'm certainly treating like this will be the only time it'll happen to me. Um, and for a lot of people, it never happens, which is just, I, I'm not in any financial rush right and so you know i don't have retire forever money but i have take as long as you need money and um and if you know i uh, talking about money is another sort of topic which is socially em- embarrassing because that's the other thing when you tell someone you just sold your company there's sort of this implication oh like okay so that has you know some some financial inference there um, when you founded it, did you have this idea? Like, hopefully we have an exit one day or you God, just no. like no. started companies with your friend. We didn't even know we were starting a company. Like we didn't even know <laughs> we were, if you were like, Hey, are you working on a startup? I would have been like, what's a startup? Like, um, we were just futzing around, you yeah. know, and, and one thing led to another. And as we educated ourselves over time, we figured out, Oh, we are building a company. And, oh, we should raise money and, oh, we have to hire people and, oh, we need a board. And like, we, we, we pieced it together, like as we went, but it, it was, um, it's funny, like compare that to a lot of my students who are like, I want to do a startup. I just don't know what it is yet. Yeah. And we were basically the exact inverse where we were actually doing the thing and serving a real need in the market before we realized that we were building a company at all, um, which unfortunately... I don't think I'll ever be able to do again because it only came out of us being so naive. And once you've lost that naivete, you, you know, you can't like, you can't get it back, which is a shame. Well, I think that's a, also a trap. I call it a hustle trap, which is they're actually aiming at an identity, Mm, right? They want to be the person that describes himself as a founder, right? Rather than, finding things they actually want to do. And it's kind of like one layer of abstraction, a little too much. And a lot of, I mean, some people can accidentally stumble upon their path on that, but a lot of people end up getting lost too. Totally. Or, you know, I know doctors, for instance, just to pick a totally different profession that right, it's very when you similar. ask like, why did you become a doctor? It's like, because I knew it would be, it would provide a good lifestyle. And it's like, oh, that was not the answer I was expecting. You know, like I thought it was because you want to help people or because whatever. And I'm sure there's some of that. I'm not, you know, these people aren't like cold-blooded, <laughs> like, like sociopaths, but it's, it's, 
that's never the answer I'm expecting, which is I knew that if I had this type of profession, I would have a certain type of salary and a certain type of job security and certain type of whatever. It's just not the way I've ever really thought about my own career. Um, And there's no right or wrong there in my opinion, but it's always striking when you realize, oh, people are approaching these things in different ways than I do or I would. Yeah, it's something I'm writing about in my book and I think is a difficulty with people taking their own paths is almost everyone lies about why they're doing what they're doing. Um, (laughs) If it's for the money, no one will ever tell you, which is extremely unhelpful to the people that don't prioritize money because they don't see the potential money they could make, right? If people are doing it for like deeper reasons, like insecurity, needing to prove themselves, they may not even be aware that they're doing that so they can't communicate it. We all have these kind of like surface level stories about why we're doing what we're doing. Um, And they're hard to understand ourselves. And then we look to what other people are doing and we're just totally confused. Yes. Or you piece together that story, again, sometimes for yourself, retroactively to sort of make sense of what, why have I been doing these things? Right. And, and we like it to fit, you know? Um, but in my experience, my own career has been so twisty and turny and unintentional. Um, but, but again, for clarity's sake or cleanness sake, you end up creating the bio that makes it sound like it was all purposeful. I'm just curious how your relationship to how you're thinking about work has shifted in these yeah. past few months. Yeah. Well, you know, in all honesty, I'm, I'm trying to figure that out. Um, so, you know, these are unpolished thoughts, but I think one thing that I've always believed that I'm surprised that m- most people in my life n- never seem to understand is, is that, what you are working on and how you make money don't need to be the same thing. And when I was pursuing my music career, uh, most of that time I had a full-time job, which had nothing to do with music. Um, When I was building my first company, Maz, uh, the way that I paid the rent was I had another business called Paul the Wizard where I would um, go to people's homes and hook up their Wi-Fi routers or their printers or teach them how to use iPhoto or whatever. And they paid me, you know, $75 an hour. Um, And, you know, I, in the evenings and some days I was working on Maz, other days I was working on my band and some hours of some days I was doing Paul the Wizard and those were three different activities. One of them made me money and two of them were other pursuits. And, um, and so I was always comfortable with the idea that, that those things could be from different places. Um, and I think a lot of people get that wrong when they think, well, I don't want to leave my job to do X because then my income will go to zero. And I just, I don't I don't really understand that. Well, I do understand actually why people think that because it's kind of what we're taught to, to understand that either you have a salary or you have zero. Um, and that I always try to 
tell people, I mean, just in my personal life, there is something that you know how to do that someone else on this planet will pay you to do. And can you sit on a couch? Great. You get paid to be a babysitter. Like it doesn't even need to be something highly skilled. People intellectually know this, but you don't actually know it in your body. And I think I experienced this in a very weird way. I left my job and I had comfort to leave my job because I had actually gone through a health crisis and gone several months without work. And that was the thing that told me, oh, I could be okay, even if I don't make money for a few months. But what I totally unexpected was, or what I didn't expect was that as soon as I didn't have an income, I awoke in this uh, like motivation inside me to make money, right? Mm. Like what people are underestimating is that your income will go to zero, but you will also realize it went to zero. <laughs> yeah, you get hungry, you know? Um, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that you had this, uh, this you know, health issue, but um, but I think what you just described is something that people don't give themselves enough credit for. Like you will figure it out because you have to figure it out. And right, exactly. There's and, no and, choice. And I do think, you know, t- in all candor, something that I worry about now is that I might not have that same hunger. I worry yeah, that interesting. that um, you know the only way to feel hungry is really to not know where your next meal is coming from, and then you just you just sort of make it happen. Um, and trying to sort of synthetically create that urgency, uh, it, it remains to be seen how effective that can be. Um, now, of course, you see all sorts of insanely rich people that are still very very ambitious. Um, much, much, you know, wealthier than me. And so uh, obviously it can be done, but I think a lot of it comes down to your personality and, and, and how much you are driven by different things. Um, for me, I've never been driven by money. That's not why I did any of the things that I've done, including these startups that ended up making me money. And so um you know, but again, you can't go back and sort of recreate those conditions uh, moving into the into the future. And so, right now, the way I'm thinking of it is, you know, what is the what is sort of the the way that you can do the things you like to do? I think a lot about optimizing for the average day, um, as opposed to you know, kind of suffering through your normal life because you have a sick vacation planned or because one day there'll be some big payday or, or anything like that. But instead, just like most of your life is spent on just a normal day. For me, you know, wake up, get the kids dressed, get them to school, work on something, you know, have dinner, clean up toys <laughs> from the living room, you know, have a, a little time with my wife uh, in the evening and go to bed. And so like, what does that day look like? If you just, you know, pick a random day from my life, uh, is that day a, a good day? And, um, and I think about that a lot of that actually being a better way to optimize than for some sort of financial outcome or some sort of, you know, lottery ticket or, or something like that. Um, and, 
again, I'm not perfect at it. You can't help but sort of have multiple considerations, but but I do try to really when I'm when I'm mindful to do so to think about that optimizing for the average day. Um, I don't know if that resonates with you at all, but but I, I think that's a much better way to approach one's work and just how one designs their their yeah. life. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the day is a good starting point. So I went through this shift where I I went like two or three months without making any income. And then I finally landed some freelance gigs and I kind of figured out I could make it work. Um, but in that space that it opened up, I kind of had this question of like, well, what do I really want to do? I, I realized I wanted to stay on this path long term. I didn't have enough money to, to make it without work for more than a year. But after about six months, I had made enough to kind of like give myself permission to not work for a while. And I basically just asked myself that question. I started with, if I could wake up every day and just do stuff I wanted to do, what will I end up doing? And what I ended up doing was nothing I could have planned, aimed at, or predicted. I started experimenting with like writing online and doing podcasting and literally just riding around on a bike in the middle of the day, um, which felt so bad to do at first. Like, who am I to be riding a bike on a Tuesday? It's just so funny you say that because really the only thing I've like splurged on is a bike. And I've done a lot of these random daytime bike rides and you're totally right. There's like a guilt almost like what sort of person just rides around. Um, but it's incredibly liberating. I remember the, the, the first day I picked up my bike from the bike store and was riding to the West side. And along the way, I just passed a, a restaurant that had some nice outdoor seating and it was a beautiful day and I was hungry and I was like, I think I'm going to stop here and like get lunch. And just like, you know, again, these are such like sort of mundane luxuries. Um, but it was like so crazy to me that I was just going to, I was going to park my bike and, and then sit here and eat the, you know, $13 like sushi lunch special at this restaurant and, and then get back on my bike and go about my merry way, uh, unplanned, unexpectedly. uh, And yeah, it was, honestly, it was really fun. Even the way you're describing it, you're kind of like, I shouldn't be appreciating this that much. But I think there's actually something hidden in that, in that these simple, spontaneous moments that are not scripted, they're not planned, actually are these portals to appreciating like the mystery of the universe, mm. which to me is just beautiful and actually worth pursuing. Um, so the way I think about a day now is actually the potential to have that kind of day every as many days as possible. And what I've discovered is that it doesn't actually require tons of money. It requires tons of time. Exactly. Which is much harder, especially if you're an interested and driven person to carve out because there's infinite things you could work on. It's impossible. Well, even for you though, you know, you're writing a book, you're trying to write online, you want to have a social presence, you're doing the podcast, like that's a lot of time right there to make progress on those projects. Do you set blocks? Like I'm going to write in the morning and explore in the afternoon, or is it more sort of just, you know, feeling your way through the week? 
Yeah, so I think so. I was saying like the day is a good starting point. I've now scaled up where I think about it in kind of like chunks of time. So like I'm in New York for two months, and my priority while I'm here is personal connections and these curiosity conversations. So I'll pretty much drop the ball on everything except finishing up the book to do that.、Um, that is a learned skill because it requires literally dropping the ball. Or screwing up on things, not following up.、Um, it involves not pursuing paid projects.、Um, but to me, it's it's not this a thousand coffees to build a network. It's a thousand coffees to build a life. So, what is the most interesting life possible? Like that to me is a crazy question worth actually pursuing. So, after this call, I'm going to meet somebody for coffee, and. We connected like four years ago, talking about paths and careers, and I don't know what's going to happen.、Um, but to me, like that's worth happening because I don't have an expectation to know where it's going to go. Yeah, not having the expectation, I think, is a luxury in itself.、Um, and and there's a a real sort of openness that is hard to channel and. You know, as you just even spoke the words, dropping the ball, I'm like starting to sweat. Feels stressful, <laughs> right? Well, because nobody likes to feel like they're failing or feel like they're whatever. But you know, even in just like personal task management, like I learned a long time ago that I can pretty much only do one thing per day.、Yeah. Like even though my list is dozens of things,、um, if I just choose one thing and I'm like, this is if I get this done. That I can feel good about today, and and to sort of, and and that means dropping the ball on all the other things, you know,、uh, at least for a day. Again, we're talking about a day versus a couple of months, but like giving yourself permission, because if you feel bad about everything that you thought you were gonna do or supposed to do, but then you aren't able to do, you'll just feel bad all the time. Well, what do you, what are you gonna drop the ball on in the next month so you can、uh, come have a curiosity <laughs> conversation with me? You know, like、uh, let's let's. Well, hopefully、uh, not your kids' stuff. Like, well, I was going to say prioritize that, but you could drop the ball but, on something. But、else. for instance, the easiest thing for me to drop the ball on is my own work, meaning writing, podcasting. You know, just sort of like giving myself time to read and think and whatever, because that when I even if I try to block that off on my calendar, it's the first thing to go. Right, so if we have this podcast scheduled at one, and someone says, "Hey, can you come get a coffee with me at one?" I'm like, "Well, no, I have a meeting at one. Like that's official on the calendar,、um, or obviously a family obligation, or whatever." But even if I try blocking off like me time, which is you know again like structured writing time, for instance, as a tangible example, it's easy to eat away at that、um, by no one else's fault. I mean, they don't even know about it. I'm the one that's eating away at it. Because it's like, well, I could always just do that a different time,、um, and those are the balls that end up getting dropped. I find is is my own work, because that's the thing that I am willing to sacrifice because it doesn't impact anyone else.、Uh, whereas things that impact other people, I'm much less likely to to drop. Yeah, I think I'm. So my entire like. Approach has been only find stuff that I'm going to do without 
needing to overcome friction. So the writing will happen. Like the writing, I love it. It's so much fun. It just happens, right? So I don't even think about scheduling that in the day. I just make sure I kind of keep open space and I know it will happen. Um, meeting people is also the same thing. And then like running my like online course and coaching and consulting business, that stuff does require effort. Right. But like my ambitions are not to uh, uh, maximize success. I'm probably targeting like 40% of what I'm capable of. And that's where the tension of like dropping the ball comes from. Um, but I know in the long run, I'll feel better if I'm doing the things that continue to bring me alive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there is this, um, there's a chase that we're all sort of in chasing whatever that next accomplishment is. And it doesn't really matter what level you're at because there's some other level, you know? Um, and, and I think, you know, I don't know how into like mindfulness and and that kind of stuff you are, but as over the years, as I got deeper into that, it was very hard to square that with ambition, for instance. Um, and I think what you just said, something as explicit as I'm going for 40%, right? And just sort of calling your shot as opposed to my, I'm calling my shot, which is infinite. Like more, I'm trying more, to, more. yeah, I'm trying to be infinitely successful. You know, the asymmetric upside, whatever, however people talk about it, um, because you'll never catch that. I mean, by definition, you can't catch yeah. it. You know, um, I'm not wired for it either. Some people actually are wired for it. I think a lot of people aren't intentional one way or the other. And yeah. you're in that job and you're up for that promotion or you're whatever that next natural step is. You just sort of march towards it because that's what you're supposed to do. Like, for instance, right now, everyone I talk to is like, so when are you starting your next company? What's your next startup going to be? Um as if that's just a given and it might be it it's hard for me not to think in those terms too but it's it's i don't like that sort of fatalist view where like there's just sort of one place that you're marching to um and i think that life has the potential to be much more interesting than that and so you know even think thinking about your own experience like a couple of years from now, let's say some amazing opportunity presents itself, feels great. And it's like a full-time job in an office. I don't know. Um, I would imagine that, you know, if you're not dogmatic about anything, then it really is about just sort of going where life takes you uh, and not having it all sort of mapped out. And then you're constantly being disappointed because it's not lining up with that exact expectation, that exact plan. I think this would be an interesting place to pause. And I, I say pause, I, I think it would be interesting to reconnect and have another similar um, conversation in like six months. Yeah. See, that'd what, be... see what's emerged for you because you're kind of at the start of what I call the pathless path and uh, trying to figure out what that all means. Meanwhile, though, where should people um, follow uh, all your adventures? Yeah. All, all my missed blog connect? posts. Um <laughs> 
so, um, so you can find me on Twitter. That's probably where I hang out the most, just at Paul Canetti. Um, and I recently did start a new uh, site slash newsletter called hypotheticallygreat.com, um, where I write about all sorts of whatever pops into my head. Um, and then I have a podcast called Tech News for MBAs where we cover sort of headlines from the week, trying to like a little slice of my classroom, um, but available for all in audio form. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm interested, you know, one thing we didn't get to talk about and maybe we'll save it for six months from now, but you know, what sort of connected us in the first place was this uh, web three, you know, fascination or, or whatever. Um, And it's a good example of, when you are having those curiosity conversations and you're sort of open to what is out there, um, that's a very different mode to be in than having already predetermined like what you're shopping for. So you're like, I'm the sort of person that's doing X and now I'm going to go have conversations to find out more X. Um, And instead it's like, well, I'm actually like open and someone comes at you with X, someone comes at you with Y, someone comes at you with Z, um, you know, you're not like pre-filtering in a way. Uh, and and that's that's one of the best shifts I've found. And one of the things I love about teaching too is because people come from all different backgrounds and have all sorts of different interests that um, I just never would have thought to sort of like go down those rabbit holes. All right. Thanks for talking, Paul. Uh, have a good day. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can, of course, check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50,000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50,000, which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.